All right, well, it's great to be here with you today, and it's been a joy over the last few years to get to know Jarrett better. I feel like I know you already because I've gotten to know him so well. We went on a trip to Ecuador together uh, with Compassion International to look at some churches and, and the work they were doing there, and I really got to know him a lot better on that trip. And I said, hey, sometime you need to come speak to my church, and, and we worked that out. And then he said, well, hey, could you return the favor? And I said, absolutely. And so I'm excited uh, to be here with you today and to share with you uh, a little bit about uh, like maybe some things you're going through right now. Some stuff that when you look out at the world, you're, you have questions and you're wondering, well, what are some ways I can respond better? Or what are some ways that I can get my family to respond better? And I'm going to talk a little bit about th that today. It comes from the book of Colossians. And so if you have a Bible, open up to the book of Colossians. I'm going to put all the scriptures up on the screen as well. But one of the most interesting things about the book of Colossians is not just uh, what's in it, which it's one of the most relevant books, I believe, in all the New Testament. It's also the context from which it is written by the Apostle Paul. Anybody ever journal your prayers? Anybody ever do that? A few of us. I go through, I don't do it all the time, but I go through ups and downs when I'll journal my prayers. And one of the most rewarding things about prayer journaling is that later you can go back and you can look at the things that God has done in your life. And I have, I have this one journal that when we were waiting on the birth of our first child, all the, God, we want a child, we want a child by this time, and, and just asking God for that. And then times in my life when I was asking for a lot of direction and waiting on God for that, and I can go back and I can open up and I can read that. Well, that's kind of what we're looking at today is a journal that was given to a church in the first century because it's written from a prison cell to a church in a town called Colossae. Now, this church was new. Uh, it, that's modern-day Turkey, if you know your geography. And it was started by people who were disciples of Jesus who kept making more disciples, and then before you know it, a church was born. The Apostle Paul was a 1,000 miles away in Rome, and he heard the church was going through some difficult times. He had heard that there were some false teachers that had infiltrated the church, and there were some people teaching things that did not line up with the gospel. Anybody ever see that happen in the church? And he heard that they were putting requirements on followers of Jesus that shouldn't be there, and there were two big things that the church at Colossae was dealing with. One was this idea that there's this secret knowledge that you can gain outside of the message of Christ. Yes, it's great to follow Jesus, but there's this other secret knowledge that you can gain. It was called Gnosticism, which is like a description of a whole group of beliefs, but one was secret knowledge. Uh, another part of Gnosticism was that uh, Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. He just appeared like he was, but he wasn't really there. Uh, another belief was that all flesh is evil, and so therefore it doesn't matter what you do with your bodies because uh, all flesh is evil, and so it's irrelevant whatever you do. So there's no right and wrong for things to do with your body. So that was being taught in the church. And they were also teaching that, hey, yes, it's great you believe in Jesus, but you got to go back and you've got to obey all of the Jewish laws. Which there's like 613. You thought there were just 10, didn't you? There's 613 of them. You just know the top 10. But they were teaching you had to go back and obey all those things. And so Paul writes this letter, uh, the book of Colossians, 
uh, for those two reasons, to help people understand who they are in Christ and Christ lives in them and they live in Christ and that's all they need. They don't need extra knowledge. They don't need extra rules to obey. They just need to know that they were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and that's enough and that's all they need. And he kind of sums all of it up in uh, chapter two, everything he's trying to talk about, uh, beginning in verse six when he says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So that's what he's trying to help them understand is everything you need is in Christ. And so he continually comes back to the gospel of Jesus to say everything is in the bodily form of Jesus Christ because they didn't believe Jesus came in bodily form. So he's reinforcing that over and over again because just like now, back then there were things being taught that sounded really good, except they weren't true. You ever see that today? You ever scroll through your newsfeed and say, oh, that, that sounds reasonable? Of course we all do. And here's what we have to understand. Just because something is popular and sounds true does not make it true. Might be popular, might sound true, doesn't mean it's true. Here, here's what Paul's trying to get them to do, to understand how to discern the difference between right and wrong. And over the past couple of years, as I have scrolled through news feeds and read what people who claim to follow Jesus write, one thought that I've had consistently is they don't know how to discern the difference between right and wrong. And that's what the book of Colossians is trying to help the church in the first century and us 2,000 years later do is to discern the difference between right and wrong. So here's what you do. This, this especially applies to you uh, teenagers, college age, younger folks, when you hear something that sounds appealing, that sounds like it might be true, you always have to line it up with what God's word teaches. You always have, and no matter how good it sounds, no matter how loving it sounds, no matter how accepting it sounds, you always have to line it up with what Jesus said it would take to be one of his disciples. He made it really clear. He's speaking to his disciples one day, specifically to the apostle Peter, and he says these words. If you wanna be my disciple." You need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So when you hear teaching that might sound really good, like they were hearing in the first century, we have to match it up with, does this go with Jesus saying, deny self, take up my cross, and follow him? Those first two words, deny self, that's not a very popular thing to say today. Because here's what sounds really good today. Oh, just, just love yourself, just you know, follow your heart. Worst advice you could ever give anybody in the history of the world is to follow your heart. How many, how many of your hearts have gotten you in trouble before? Yes, me too. You ever thought you were in love, found out later you weren't? Your heart will deceive you. So following your heart is really bad life advice. And so when you hear, follow your heart, how does that line up with Jesus saying, deny yourself? Because follow your heart says, embrace yourself. Deny yourself means appeal to something greater outside of yourself. And Jesus is saying, that's me. 
And so through this entire book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate, look, there are standards and there is truth and there's freedom in that and you need to follow it. And he said, if you want to grow in your faith, stay rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ is in you and you are in him. And he gave him that same reminder over and over again because just like then, now, when cultural pressures come in, anybody feel cultural pressure? Am I just seeing that myself or is everybody seeing that? Cultural pressure requires a deeper commitment. When I start to feel the culture around me pressuring me to change my beliefs or go against this, it requires a deeper commitment to the gospel of Christ. And the reason the apostle Paul said, you stay rooted in your faith, you keep growing, is because it's hard to be deceived by the world's lies when I'm growing deeper in God's truth. And so that truth that he brings to them is that when you follow Christ, it affects all of your life. When you follow Christ, students, it affects the kind of student you are. It affects the way you interact with your teacher. It affects the way, you, when you get a job, it affects the way you interact with your boss. If you're a boss, it affects the way you interact with your employees. It affects the kind of neighbor you are, the kind of person you are on the field. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. When you follow Christ, everything in your life should honor Christ. So you don't have to wonder, should I do this or not? The question should be, does this honor Christ or not? If it honors Christ, do it, enjoy it, have fun. If it doesn't, get it out of your life and don't do it anymore. In chapter three, verse 23, he's starting to close out his thoughts with this church in Colossae when he says this, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you're serving is Christ. Now he's driving home the point, they need nothing other than Christ to change their life and everything they do should bring honor to Christ. The first time I ever read this verse. I was in college. I was a brand new follower of Jesus because one day I was on the fastest road to hell I could be on, enjoying every minute of it. Somebody invited me to church. Everything changed. And I'm sitting in front of the, the, the guy that's the pastor of the church I was going to, and I was hating school. Hated every minute of it after I accepted Christ. I didn't like it. I thought, I just want to study the Bible all the time. That's all I want to do. And I had this one class. It was an accounting class, and I hated it. Hated it. Who's with me? I did not enjoy it, and I, was, I, I didn't like the professor, and I wasn't doing well, and I went to this pastor, and I was like, give me something. What do I do? And he read these words to me in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. And I said, okay, then I'm going to work at it as hard as I can, even though I hate it, even though I don't enjoy it. And then I ended up marrying an accountant. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and so Paul is driving home the point, you need to understand that Christ is in all of your life, every part of your life, and everything you do should bring honor to him. And so when he's trying to tell them, you need to pray and you need to have intentional spiritual growth because those two things will help you discern the difference between right and wrong. And when I scroll through my newsfeed and I see people that I have influence over and I teach, it convicts me because I think, they don't know the difference. Part of that's on me. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. And Paul is saying, 
If you grow in your faith, if you stay deeply rooted and have intentional spiritual growth in your life, you will be able to discern the difference between right and wrong, no matter how good it sounds. No matter how good what you're hearing sounds, you will be able to discern if. I mean, parents, isn't that our job with our kids? Teach them how to discern and have the least amount of regret possible in life. That's what we wanna do with our kids. I want you to know the difference between right and wrong, and I want you to have the least amount of regret possible, so here are the things I did that you shouldn't do that lead to regret. Isn't that what we tell them? And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, you need to be growing in your faith so you can discern the difference between right and wrong because when we can't discern, we end up with regret or we end up deceiving somebody. And so he tells them, beginning in chapter four, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. In his closing words, he's bringing them back to this one idea that he started with, actually way back in chapter one, which was you need to have this constant communication with God, and that'll help you stay strong. When I think of all the spiritual giants in my life, some of the people who are the strongest spiritually that I've ever known, they all have a strong prayer life. Whether they journal it, whether they just do it in their mind, whether they speak it out loud, whatever they do, they have a strong prayer life. You you cannot find a spiritual giant who does not also have a strong prayer life, constant communication with God in heaven. Those two things go together. And then Paul moves from, you ought to pray, to I've got a prayer request. And he says that in verse three. And pray for us too, that we may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it as clearly, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Now think about this for a moment. He's in prison for preaching about Christ. He's in a prison cell. This is actually the prison cell that he would be taken from to his execution in Rome. And he's saying, hey, I want you to pray for me. This shows me I still have a lot of work to do in my life because if I was in that prison cell, you know what my prayer would be? Would y'all pray that I get the heck out of here? Would you pray that there's some change in a law or public opinion or something changes so I don't have to be in this prison cell? Pray that God, you know, zaps a couple people or miraculously opens these doors or causes an earthquake or the guard dies, something. Just say a prayer so I can get out of this prison cell. That's not what he prays. He prays that God may open a door so he can proclaim the mystery of Christ even clearer. And that's why we're talking about Paul 2,000 years later. And you probably won't be talking about me 2,000 years from now. It's because he had it in his head what was the most important thing in his life, and that was sharing the gospel of Christ. You know what that tells me? If he can do that in those circumstances, it tells me that my circumstances should never determine my attitude. That no matter what I'm going through, no matter what the circumstances are I find myself in, good or bad, on top or on the bottom, hurt, whatever, that I can still have the attitude of Christ in the middle of something even difficult in my life because God can overcome any circumstance. So instead of, God, get me out of here, God, get me past this, God, get this out of my life, how about we start to pray like the Apostle Paul where he says, 
You know, pray that this is an opportunity. Because, I mean, he was in prison. He knew he was going to die. And he could have said, woe is me. But he said, I need more opportunity to share the message of Christ. So what if we did that? What if we saw our circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether it's bad jobs, bad bosses, bad teachers, failed relationships, and we could pray the prayer, God, somehow use this to open a door so I can proclaim your goodness and your truth to others. And then, after he's given them all this knowledge that they need for these first uh, three chapters of the book of Colossians uh, to refute false teaching, he's given them that. He, he's told them, this is the truth, and you have the truth now. You know how to recognize and discern the false teaching that is among you. That's what he's telling them. And then he says this as he's closing out his thoughts with this church. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, after, throughout this letter, Paul is saying, warn people, be careful, make sure you know how to discern. There's people, there are deceivers among you teaching heresies. Don't believe it. And he puts it all into perspective for them. And then he comes to these last few words and he says, but be careful in the way you act towards outsiders. Make sure your conversations are full of grace. You know why he's telling them that? Because when people have the truth, like we do, when we know what the standard is, like we do, the word of God is the standard. There's no issue in this world that we cannot apply the word of God to and it get better. Poverty, apply the word of God, it'll get better. Racism, apply the word of God, and it'll get better. In anything you can think of, apply the word of God. The division in our world today, apply the word of God and it will get better because this is the standard and we have it and we believe it. We have the knowledge, we have truth, and we have the standard. And Paul knows, just like it was in the first century, what knowledge can do to people just like it does today. It can puff you up. In fact, he says that to another church. Be careful because knowledge will puff you up. He's saying you need to be careful with the truth that you have because all of us know people who have said truthful things in hurtful ways. Maybe you've done that. Maybe that's been done to you. And he's telling them, be very wise because what you know should change the way you interact with other people. Now, all of us know people who don't know Christ. I do. People who are lost. Think about them. Paul is saying, be wise in the way you act towards those who are outside the truth. You have it. You've been told it. But hey, I, wanna, I want you to be wise in the way you act towards people who don't have it. Extend grace. Well, do I confront sin? Of course you do. He doesn't say, hey, stop confronting things that are wrong. He says, when you have conversations, make sure they're full of grace. That's what he's trying to communicate. Do I tell people that they're lost without Jesus? Of course you do. But you do it in a way that's full of grace. A couple months ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, and uh, the, the lady I was listening to, her name's Elisa Childers, and she was telling uh, the story uh, about this guy that she had on as a guest, and she asked him a few questions about how he came to know Jesus. 
And he tells a story about being in a coffee shop week after week while he was living in sin. And he sees these Christians over in the corner studying the Bible. And he's like, oh, great, Christians studying the Bible. So finally, he gets the nerve to go over and talk to them. And he talks to them uh, about what they believe. And he tells them his life and his lifestyle. And he asks them, do you think that's sinful? And they said, yes, we do. He goes back to his table. They also invited him to church. And he said that night, he tossed and turned in his bed thinking, how much did they have to care about me to tell me they think I'm wrong? Now, his perspective was great. So he accepts their invitation to church. He goes to church, and he has this radical experience with Jesus and becomes a follower of Christ and is now written books, preaching God's word to everyone he can about what grace-filled words can do to people like him. Now, I don't know the words that these Christians used in the coffee shop. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't talk about what specific words they used to make him feel like that, but I bet the Apostle Paul would have been proud. I bet he would have said, those are the kind of words that you use towards people who are outside the gospel of Christ. I don't think we can ever go wrong erring on the side of grace with those outside the church, but we do all the time. I read some of your news feeds, I'm sure. And I see people responding with truth, but in really mean, nasty ways. And I think God doesn't need one more jerk speaking words of truth. He needs people who understand they're saved by God's grace. And so they're going to give that to other people. And maybe it won't be the same speed as you. Maybe it, it's not the same speed as the guy in the coffee shop that, that learned his life was wrong and then changed it almost immediately. It may not be that fast, but words of grace never are wasted. Why do you think, if you read the teachings of Jesus and he said some pretty hard things, like you bunch of snakes, you, you bunch of people, you're like a tomb that, that's whitewashed and people fall in it. He said that to people who were following God. And then when it came to people who were outside the family of God, he, he spoke more words of grace and said, hey, I forgive you. You need to leave your life of sin, but I, you need to know you're forgiven. And so how should that affect the way we communicate with people who are outside the family of God? When I first said yes to Jesus, it was the grace of Jesus that drew me in. I can remember the person I was studying the Bible with was reading to me the book of Galatians, which is all about the grace of God. And that won me over to Christ, the alternative would not have. It's because they were grace-filled words. Not just truth-filled words, because you can say truthful things in hurtful ways, but they were grace-filled words. And the last part, if you have your Bibles, I wanna read the ending, because you know when you read the Bible and it's got a bunch of names and stuff that thinks, oh, that doesn't mean anything, that's just a bunch of people's names. I'm gonna read some people's names that I'm probably not gonna pronounce them right, but it's okay. Well, I could just not tell you that because you probably don't know either. <laughs> In Colossians chapter four, Paul ends up his letter with uh, a few verses and he says this. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances so that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who's one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. 
Now, the way Paul would have written this letter, he would have been sitting in a prison cell and somebody would have been sitting outside the prison cell, probably this guy, Tychicus, and let's call him Ty. Ty was sitting outside the prison cell and Ty's writing everything down that Paul is saying. And he gets done and he rolls it up and then he's responsible for taking this letter from Rome all the way to Colossae, which is Turkey. That's about a thousand miles and he would have walked it. So that's like leaving here and going to Miami and taking a very important package. And so he would have gotten to Colossae, he would have assembled people much like this, and he would have opened that letter and he would have started to read all the words I've read to you from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. If Tychicus would have never done what Paul asked him to do, we wouldn't be reading this book. Now, he didn't know when he was walking along, like, I'm carrying the Bible. My name's in the Bible. My name is gonna be in the Bible. <laughs> he didn't know that. All he knew, here was an apostle, and he's taking this letter to a church that desperately needs to hear it. And here we are 2,000 years ago talking about a guy that gets one mention in the entire Bible. And he took words of truth from a prison cell to a church that brought freedom, that brought grace, that brought direction and discernment for a church that desperately needed it, and we're getting the same thing from it, all because Tychicus said yes, and he obeyed. And you never know, you never know the impact your current obedience to God has on future generations. When Jarrett mentioned, uh, when he and Jim were up here talking about, if you have a, a newborn, we got a plan for them till they're 18 years old. You never know. Those of you that are part of that plan that help those kids as they go through all those years and, and the elementary years, the middle school years when you wanna like be done with them and then the high school years, we had three of them, I know. When you're making an investment in them and you're being obedient to God, you never know what impact is gonna happen on future generations because you are obedient to God. And that's what this guy Tychicus was doing. He was just obeying what Paul asked him to do. So here's what you need to remember is my obedience to God always makes a difference. Always. It may not, you may not see it right now, but it will make a difference eventually. It's going to make a difference when you obey God. And then the, almost the last verse, he says this. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, those just sound like names, uh, Mark and his cousin Barnabas, but there's a history with Paul and Mark, who's also known as John Mark and Barnabas. If you've ever read the book of Acts, there's a spot in the book of Acts where John Mark goes on a journey with Paul and Barnabas. Well, John Mark kind of backs out. He doesn't go on the entire journey. He backs out of it, he goes home early, and Paul gets so upset with him, he says, you know, John Mark, you cannot go with us anymore. And Barnabas says, no, I want him to go with us. And so they have a disagreement, those three. Paul goes one direction to preach the gospel, they go another direction. It's first church split in history, I guess. So they split and they go in different directions. But here Paul is, near the end of his life, lifting up these two people he had had disagreement with. You know what that tells us? Everybody deserves a second chance. Because whatever John Mark did that got Paul so upset with him, somehow they had worked it out along the way. And Paul had given the grace 
that he was preaching about. He had given the grace that he had received, and now he's saying, look, when John Mark comes, you welcome him just like you would welcome me. They worked it out, and he got a second chance. See, God has given all of us a second chance, and he's probably given you a third chance and a tenth chance. Anybody made the same mistake more than once? I have. God is the God of multiple chances. And what the Apostle Paul is saying, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders because they need another chance too. So I want to challenge you to go, go read the whole book of Colossians. And as you learn truth and you learn how to look at our culture and see the despicable things that are happening and to discern the difference between right and wrong and know that we hold up the standard, God's word as the ultimate truth, no matter how it makes anybody feel, it's still the truth. Remember, when we share those words, whether we're typing them on our newsfeed or we're sharing them across the table at a coffee shop, Paul says, make sure they're, they're filled with grace. And so when you speak the truth that you know, speak it with words of grace. Because the person you're speaking with, they need another chance, just like you do, and just like you have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words that that, that young man, Tychicus, delivered. And now we hear about them 2,000 years later, God. May we be convicted to speak words of truth with grace and to be wise and make sure our conversations are had in a way that convict instead of offend. God, we know we need a second chance. We know we need more than two chances, God, and we're thankful for your grace that is never ending throughout our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.